they have been in school all day long. Now, some school systems are different, but they've been told exactly what to do, how to do it. That's wrong. Don't do that. Do this, do this. And then we're going to bring them out to a weight training session or a skill session. And we're going to go, nope, that's wrong. Don't do this. Nope, that's wrong. Kids need a chance to like, not only be kids, but even, even like professional movers need a chance to be that person. You know, they need a chance to explore a little bit and to play a little bit. And so I see great value in little spurts of it, little bursts of time. And I have numerous coaches that um, I could mention here that we have worked with at Emergence and just other people that I know where they've tried this with, we're talking professional baseball organizations, professional football organizations, colleges, and the athletes take to it right away because they see the value in it. And they also realize how much fun it is. That was Tyler Yearby, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Lost Empire Herbs, and I want to share with you how to get a free bag of pine pollen through Lost Empire here today. Quickly first, I used to think herbs was just jinkle biloba you got at the drugstore, but after being introduced to compounds such as the Phoenix Formula through Lost Empire, I've been a regular consumer of Lost Empire Herbs for over four years now. The Phoenix Formula instantly changed my viewpoint on herbalism. I was literally buzzing with energy after my first dose. Within two weeks, I was noticing strength improvements in the weight room. And it's been fun expanding my herbalism regime to different things throughout the Lost Empire Herbs store. In Phoenix Formula in particular, along with Shiliagit, which is a very popular herb for strength and performance, you also have pine pollen, which is a superfood. It offers a variety of energy, health, and performance benefits. And you can grab that free bag of pine pollen with the modest cost of shipping by heading to justflypinepollen.com. I can't recommend Lost Empire enough, and I really enjoy the fact that I've been able to partner with them through this podcast for as long as I have. So be sure to check that out. Let's get on to the rest of the show. Welcome to another episode of the podcast, and thanks for being here. I'm excited to welcome back to the show guest Tyler Yearby. Tyler is the co-founder and director of education at Emergence, a leading company in sport movement and skill development education. He's a former NCAA strength coach. He's delivered over 200 domestic and international education courses, workshops, and conference presentations. Tyler has worked with a wide range of athletes from youth to professional, and he's currently pursuing his doctorate in sport and exercise at the University of Gloucestershire. For today's episode, Tyler will be going into important movement and skill learning topics that can help make the training session more alive and engaging. And this is true whether you are a team sport, a skills coach, or in the world of physical preparation, whether you're working with older athletes, more advanced athletes, or younger individuals, these concepts are universal. They will help athletes to achieve better results and retain and learn skills better. So, Excited to get to the podcast today. I really enjoyed talking with Tyler. Let's get to episode 382. Tyler, great to have you back on the show, man. Thanks for being here. I know um, probably a lot has changed since the last time we chatted. Uh, anything I, you've been up to lately? I think been doing PhD work, things like that. Um, how's things been for you in the last few years that uh, have changed in the world of your uh, trajectory? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, it's been a minute, like you said, and there's some that's changed and some that's maybe stayed a bit more consistent anyway. As far as uh, the doctoral work, things have been going really well. I mean, it's it's hard to you know hard to believe in some ways. I'm less than a year away from hopefully defending my my dissertation and and achieving the award. But I've learned a tremendous amount in the process from authoring papers and how I can help further impact those in the community. Uh, at least make people aware of different approaches to skill acquisition. So that has been extremely enjoyable. You know, we just had our sport movement skill conference, which was a tremendous success and really exciting to see where the community is, which I can elaborate on here in a second. And then just from a a personal standpoint, I'm at three young kids. And so getting a chance to be a a dad and be present and it's been, it's been amazing, quite frankly. And so, yeah, things have, things have been moving right along and uh, I, I can elaborate certainly on some areas that have had some pretty good change in some areas that maybe are still a little bit static that need to move along. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And before we get before we get into probably some of the more the questions that might carry more depth with them and some of the motor learning topics, I did want to ask you something that I just I thought was interesting because I was thinking about you had mentioned parkour and donor sport uh, oh, yeah, type yeah. the element of that. 
And Jeremy Frisch, uh, this just popped in my head as Jeremy Frisch was talking about playing tackle basketball when he was a kid. And I was like, well, that could be a donor sport, maybe for ta- or basketball or football. <laughs> and then uh, I was just thinking, I was my mind was kind of going. I was like, oh, maybe you could mix parkour and soccer or tackle ultimate frisbee. Or, but I, what I wanted to uh, ask you was your take on some of those, I don't know, you could just say roughhousing, free play type sports. Uh, you have kids now watching them grow up. Uh, I'm curious what your, you know, if you could synthesize activities for your kids that you think would be great for them to do as they grow and mature and, and move into other sports, do you have any thoughts on those kind of things? Well, first of all, tackle basketball. That's, that sounds actually like something I'd like to participate in. Yes, exactly. Me, <laughs> you, you mentioned that, it, and real quick before I address the, the specific question, when I was a youngster growing up, we had a trampoline basketball. So, talk about the the different opportunities that you have whenever you're hanging in midair and you don't have the capability to jump that high. So obviously I'm a fan of it. Um, as far as kind of my overarching thoughts, I think number one, first and foremost, with youth and just development in general, it's about creating a platform for exploration. Um, I think it's also about creating a platform for exposing them to as many different movement problems as possible. So when you think about the perspective of an invasion sport, you're having to elude defenders, you're having to pass balls to teammates, you don't want to get tackled, you want to you know, be able to put the ball in the bucket. So there's lots there that can have carryover to other sports. So that donor sport idea where there's overlapping affordances or opportunities for action. So think about it from the perspective of like football or rugby or basketball or lacrosse, these team sport activities or team sports where you have varying angles that are changing and different velocities of oncoming defenders, but you need to be aware of and open to other possibilities to pass the ball to your teammate. There's carryover there. So while there's certainly going to be aspects of it that are different than the actual target sport, there's enough value there, as long as it's done safely, of course, Mm -hmm. there's enough value there to where youngsters can start to become sensitive to that information, such as they don't even know that they are necessarily, but that that velocity of that oncoming defender, the angle at which they're moving, maybe the subtleties of their hips dropping and their angles of their cuts and things that will be informative to why they make decisions in the way they do. So, I mean, I'm a fan of it for sure. I use and have used a lot of that with the youngsters that I worked with growing up. And then uh, to touch on my kids real quick, we do a lot of that kind of stuff where we will create a game and a lot of times it's co-created with them. And it may not have a name, necessarily <laughs> other than my last name we'll call it yerby ball or something and it really just is about exposing them to movement that way they can fall in love with movement people forget that that's a lot of times where it needs to start for youngsters and you mentioned jeremy one thing i think he does well is help expose athletes to that help them fall in love with movement and something obviously that i'm passionate about as well and then on top of that there needs to be some some value there with why you're doing that on top or going beyond that and that to me is and I'm discussing it in different ways. That's specifying information. That's affordances that that these opportunities that will have overlap into numerous sports. And so if I need to become adept at offloading a pass under pressure, if I'm in a said sport, well, that can be done in tackle basketball, no different than it can in other sports. <laughs> more incentive to offload it. Right. Too. <laughs> right. And there's they're more excited about it. Now that said, I'll close by saying when you start to look at like transfer to sport, there is going to need to be more similarity and richness of of valuable information that will be available for pickup. But if we're talking about for youngsters and just exploring how they can move within the world, I think it's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you, uh, well, I'll go back to the very first thing you said with the tackle basketball and like wanting to play that yourself. I would as well. I saw some video, I think it was like wrestlers playing tackle some form of tackle wrestling basketball and i I don't know if that's what they do for fun i was like i thought i think i sent that to jeremy as soon as i saw that um one other thing too i was thinking about too just in terms of that donor sport idea and i was going to ask you this also in context of you know you being a father and having kids and seeing on one end you have more of the very literature side of things and then the other you know we talk about the science and the art and blending it's like there's no more pure art of it than just watching children grow up and learn and play and move. And so I was going to ask you a little bit about what being a father has, how, how that has helped you to see it in that light. Because I also think for people listening, that's probably the easiest way to just to start in the sense that I was just having this conversation with Paul Cater and that like coaching youth sports. I know, I know for me, it's been the ultimate, like if, if you are like, let's say a strength or a sports performance coach or a personal trainer, who's just getting involved with the skill side, like or even let's say a sports coach on some level 
that has not had an education in these principles, like the youth sports side is almost the easiest place to start because it is it is so simple. The barrier to entry is so low. And so for me, it's been a cool place to consider that as well. So I'm curious what your uh, take is just, yeah, the art side of things, being a father and seeing that with your children growing up and how they're you know learning and moving and you, like you said moving towards eventual more representative tasks well first of all i've, I've learned a lot <laughs> secondly i would say probably the the most impactful lesson is just be more patient with rates of learning i mean we forget sometimes there's varying rates of learning it's not all linear um, it's very non-linear there's times of you know where it's stagnant there's times where it, you see rapid change so i think for me it's maybe saying even less in a learning environment, that doesn't mean I'm not informative or instructing or uh, helping to shine a light on an area that I think might be helpful for the for the little little kid. But I think at the same time, it is about, like I said earlier, like it's about exploratory behavior. It's about an opportunity for for me to then realize like there needs to be a time where I just kind of let an activity unfold. And something that I've been ruminating about a lot lately and discussing it with other friends, it's like, what are mistakes, first of all? But like, how how far do I let mistakes, if you will? How far do I let them go? Because what they're doing is they're learning to functionally self-organize and create synergies that are helpful to them to move well. And so for me, in summary, I've learned to be more patient as a father. Number two, I think you're right in the fact that like, if you're unfamiliar with um, the manipulation of constraints or the education of intention and attention or just other ideas that would underpin nonlinear pedagogy, I think it is a good place to start because you can in some ways just start to change things, which is also known as manipulating constraints, like whether it's the size of an implement, whether it is giving them something that's lighter or heavier if they're swinging, whether it's changing a rule such as they get more points if they do said, you know, if they hit the ball this far, they get this point or over this barrier, they get this point, or if they can beat two defenders with a pass, then they get said points. But you're incentivizing behavior. Sometimes it can be very explicit. Sometimes it could just be changing a rule and you don't say anything else, but that's going to guide their intentions. So they then may look to do different things. So I think it's a really good starting place for it. And then as coaches and as a father, I've learned that like, okay, I I need to do more because it's been weeks now and their behaviors relatively similar, you know, as far as what they're looking to do. Maybe that's where their eyes are oriented. They're looking down when they're dribbling. So how can I change the environment in some way that might provoke them to want to look up to their teammate? And so I think that it's a great starting point for coaches in summary. Yeah, it is. And I'm glad you um, brought up the nonlinear piece because something I've been thinking about, I've, I've actually been thinking about it even more in light of um, Bush Exonator had talked about who has a track coach with a big motor learning mm-hmm. background had talked about sometimes uh, we, we so often want to see all this progress in one session like and that's where it's like almost seems like it's a trick sometimes like it's like we especially if you have someone paying you like you have someone paying you to teach them some sort of skill and you feel like you have to make all this progress in the session and maybe you start laying on more cues and language to try to um, push and force your way to that progress or how you perceive progress but with the youth sports it's just it's so funny this is like one of the biggest takeaways and again it's so much easier to move the needle for a five or six or seven year old like anything can almost anything can move that needle but like in watching like my daughter her first soccer season like almost no and again a lot of it's emotional too with the environment and sure. and fear yep. of the environment but the difference between one season to the next was just unbelievable like in in ability to move in the environment ability to do the skills that we didn't even really work on <laughs> and so i mean just but to me and then even watching the other athletes like move or my son or the other kids on the team where it's like they t- they play they take a break they play again and all of a sudden all these things are better and i'm not saying that you know it's obviously not like that forever but it did does get me thinking a lot about that nonlinear form of progress and also just the way that the messy way that forward progress has made it's and, and we're, we're often so impatient we want to see it all in one session and realizing that some of these things just take time to let that, like, just like a plant growing, like to let that plant grow and not like, ah, I have to see this now. Like, let's do these fundamentals right now so I can say you got better this much in this session, that kind of thing, you know? And it's like, just to be able to see that unfold and have that different perspective has been valuable. 
Well, you bring up a number of excellent points. One of the ones at the very tail end of your response there probably be a good place to start. Like you mentioned the word fundamental. I I think that's a, a great area for coaches to spend some time thinking about. And it could be in conversation with other friends of theirs that coach. It can just be sitting and thinking about it whenever you're on your drive home. Like what does fundamental mm-hmm. mean to you? For me, fundamental used to mean I teach them the exact movement mechanics and it was going to be basically the same for everyone. Maybe I would change my external cue a little bit to help Susie or Johnny, depending on their age. But there was one way to do it and it needed to be imprinted somewhere, if you will. Now, I'm not going to get into the motor learning literature, but that's one view. And then the other view is, is, well, I want to create a function. I want to help them create a functional fit with the environment. And what a functional fit means is them starting in a place of trying to explore different ways they can orient their degrees of freedom. So their muscle, joint, limb segments, how their perceptions are scanning the world, picking up noise, what they're visually seeing, but then also what their thoughts are and what they're intending to do in a situation. And those are the degrees of freedom and they operate holistically. They don't operate in silos together and they're ever changing. So I think for me, the biggest thing is, is if I want to influence fundamental movement, what I would term kind of a functional fit with the world or becoming one with the movement problem, that's setting up a bunch of problems for Mm -hmm. them to try. And sometimes letting those, and I have air quotes up, mistakes happen. It's not necessarily a mistake if they're just trying a different thing because they're working through different ways that they can move within the world. Now, it's not just complete hands-off approach though. There There are times where there needs to be explicit instruction there. Like, have you tried XYZ? And you ask a question, or what have you noticed about Johnny whenever every time you get the ball, what have you noticed about Johnny? It could be a simple question, or it could be a, a brief statement, such as, show me how you can try to solve that problem differently. Yeah. Or I want you to try to move with a little bit more tempo in the next repetition, or a little faster tempo in the next repetition. Now, you may be saying that because you've seen them get tackled or or lose the ball a number of times. And if we respect the fact that we believe that behavior of one individual is going to influence the behavior of another and vice versa. Well, you changing or you being the kid, changing the tempo may freeze the other individual. It may cause the other individual to over-pursue, but then it presents different affordances or different opportunities for action. And so I think for me, functional is really what I like to view. And so I'm not necessarily trying to get them to perform my movement per se that I've idealized as the best way. I'm wanting them to find how it works for them. And last thing here, you mentioned like youth and like we have kids that are growing rapidly. We, they're they're becoming emotionally in you know their shifts in emotion are different. So all of that's going to influence yeah. their thoughts, going to influence how they can actually stride if it's a track and field. It's going to change a lot. Um, Heraclitus, a Greek philosopher, I've mentioned this a number of times. You've probably heard me say it before. No man ever steps in the same river twice, for it's not the same man and it's not the same river. Now, that could be woman, child, kid, whatever. But my point is, is it's everything's changing. And so I, I think we've moved beyond, and even most people that would consider themselves to be a, a traditionalist have realized like uh, fundamental may have a different meaning than what it used to. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up that quote. I, there was a podcast just recently I, I had mentioned that because I, I love that. It, it's motivating for me too sometimes. I'm 40 now and I think about yeah, how like, my yeah, body has changed and how if, if you compare yourself even to last year, you know, that can be a detrimental way of looking at it. Or I, I'm comparing myself to even if I'm 25 and I compared myself to, oh, when I was 19, I did this, this. You see it a lot in like track and swimming. When, oh, when I was at my best, I was doing these workouts and this and that. And like, well, you're not the same athlete. You are, but you yeah, have the same basics, a lot of basic, but you're not 100% the same athlete. <laughs> and even if they're subtle changes, yeah, like even yeah. if it's just like the the way you intend to exploit different things, yeah. whether it's a gap, because now you're more adept at dribbling a basketball, mm-hmm. well, you're going to look for different gaps than you used to. Or if you're a if you're a better swimmer, you may try to conserve energy in certain ways that you may not have done before. And so I won't keep going because that's a whole nother conversation, yeah. but I think it is important for coaches to sit down and actually think about like what does fundamental mean to me or am i trying to achieve more of an adaptable athlete or help them become more adaptable or do i want them to become more consistent and i think that's a whole nother rabbit hole to explore
Yeah. I appreciate Tyler, by the way, because you, you're saying I could go because I've heard these conversations and they could each be their whole podcast. So I appreciate right. you not like, because I would That's have, have to derail. I'm going to derail for 30 minutes to go into this. No, I appreciate we'll that. Do it. We'll do uh, yeah. It. Maybe we could touch on it again later. Um, but yep. something you had said, uh, you know, I'd, I've been thinking a lot more of this. Uh, um, I had uh, Aaron Cantor was a recent guest I had on and in a workshop I went to that was put on by Evolve Move Play, so Rafe Kelly and and uh, and that uh, system of thinking. Yeah, Rafe's a good guy. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, it's really uh, got my wheels turning in a lot of ways. And one of the things that I really um, was tuned more into after that was the idea of almost like prompts versus commands, and even not even necessarily in um, like he could use this idea of thinking in sport, in you know, in a more singular skill, like a speed or strength thing, or even just in a group conversation. Like, how do you facilitate a creative thought process? And the idea of like a prompt versus a command, if you think about like yin and yang, like 100%, you know, hardline masculine is a command. Whereas perhaps 100% hardline, like a feminine would be just like only ever questions. Like there's never anything, but I think the answer is always somewhere in the middle, maybe you need a little bit more of one or the other at some point. But I do, I like starting with, like you said, like like you even talking about, like to me, a prompt is things with, there's a lot of ways you could go with that. Where a command, yeah, you close it down great. to one, you know? <laughs> and so just, it's almost like always instructing in a way that gives some level of exploration. I'm giving you some way that your autonomy, there's, and maybe there's a nozzle too, you know? It's almost like, there's maybe prompts that offer a lot more ways you could go with this or prompts you could do a little bit less. And I was actually going to ask you, so one, and I, I, I'm so bad at having these multi-part questions. I apologize. No, so I see where you're going because I actually love what you're, what you're sharing there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, any follow-up on that? And then two, I do want to get back to this is just for you know a wide variety of people listening to this, a lot of people who may be in more of the sports performance realm. So I am curious, I w- did want to ask you fundamentals in relation to, hey, teaching lifts. Uh, teaching basically like, hey, we're going to learn to accelerate coming out of a crouch position, like some basic things that are sure. live in that realm. Yeah. I did want to get to your take on fundamentals and working with those things. But uh, first, your uh, just anything you have on that end, what I mentioned with prompts and commands. Yeah, as far as the, the prompts versus the commands, the <clears> reason <throat> why I like that is because you're right. Like a command is like, do it this way. This is how I need you to do it this time. Whereas a prompt is helping illuminate areas that could be and what the potential is. And that's where, for me, I think where a lot of my instruction has changed as a coach has been, I know that athletes need to solve problems in a number of different ways. Like there's, They're, they're not going to be successful if they have one way to do something. They, they may be successful for a short time frame, and that makes us feel good as a coach. And then all of a sudden, they move up to U18, and they were at U whatever. And now they all of a sudden are not nearly as successful. The level of complexity is higher. So we, we want to help develop adaptable movers, not necessarily ones that are more stable, if you will. So I like the idea of prompts because really what you're doing is you're you're educating their attention to the environment and their relationship to the environment. That could be other players. That could be the orientation of of a tennis player as they're serving. Like there's uh, serves are going to have different ways in which the ball is is lifted in the air. There's going to be different lean back of the server. There's going to be subtle differences within their the expression of their movement that will tell you, if you will, a lot about what may be coming. And so that's just helping them become more sensitive. And so there's that level of tacit knowledge then. But I love the idea of prompts. And I, mean, I, I term that mm-hmm. as education of attention. You're just trying to educate their attention, which is also going to be intertwined with how they may intend to interact. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also where then explicit to your point of yin yang, that's that the point of being explicit sometimes is they're not then picking it up. There's something there that you can tell because of their behavior is not changing. Like they're not picking up maybe the orientation of the server in tennis. And so it might, you might then need to say, what are you noticing about the relationship of the ball and where it is over their head? Because it might be a little bit different mm-hmm. if they're trying to hit it with spin versus uh, just more of a drive. So that's what I mean by that. Um, and so I can answer the second question for you. Sure. I think that I was alluding to it already. But as far as like, let's take it more basic, I guess, traditionalist mm-hmm. way of approaching a lift or acceleration, things of that nature, I still view it as helping them explore different ways. That's the simplest way I can say it. So I'll give you a specific example. If you're teaching someone to back squat, okay, or let's just say squat in general, let's make it a little bit easier, squat in general. 
we know that there are certain positions that may be compromising to them, especially when they start to get a heavier load on their back or they're moving at higher speeds. Okay. So I need to be mindful of that. But I also need to make sure that I'm not pigeonholing them in only standing and orienting mm-hmm. their toes and their degrees of freedom in one way versus another. Now, I was the latter for the longest time. Nope, do this, then do this, then do this. And they looked at me and were like, what did you want me to do? You know what I mean? Like they, so I think first yeah. of all, it's like being simpler to begin with and making a game out of something that is asking them to perform the movement, but not telling them how yeah. to do it. So that might be, you know, we're going to reach back and you're going to just tap the box behind you like you're sitting on a chair. Okay. That's a really simplistic way. One that many people in this call probably already used, or it might be having them setting a, literally for youth, setting a game up where there are objects on the ground and they have to bend over and pick up these objects in different ways each time. So there's 15 objects on the ground. I want you to show me a different way each time you bend over and pick it up, but it has to look something like a squat and it could look something like this. And you may demo different ways. So a split stance, you may demo a wider stance. You're giving them a lot of goes at working through that problem. Now, from there, you could ask probing questions. You know, how did it feel whenever you bent over and picked up that last one? Ah, felt a lot better. Well, maybe it was because they were a little a little more rigid. They they pushed their hips back a little more. You get my point. Yeah. So then then it's adding implements. And you know, I talk a lot about manipulation constraints and I'll be mindful that that's a whole nother conversation, <laughs> but coaches are always manipulating constraints. Yeah. It may be as simple as why is a goblet squat in general so popular and why is it used so often? Well, you've changed where the distribution of the load is. So naturally people want to fight back against that, pulling them forward and it puts them in a, let's call it better position. But in doing so, they get a chance to work through that and feel it. But there still does need to be that exposure of the bar on the back or addressing the acceleration piece. It could be something centered around, I want you to come out lower on the next one. I want you to come out higher on the next one. See how you can come out harder on the next one, come out slower on the next one. I want you to take your shoes off. I want you to put your shoes on. We're going to do this on this surface. We're going to do this on that surface. So you're then you're just taking the Bernstein notion of repetition without repetition, and you're giving them a chance to feel all of these different situations. And then that's where you can then be more specific about maybe where your instruction may be. But you're not telling them your knee has to do this, your your toe has to do this, because then it's going to educate their intentions to that space, and it may be detrimental to their outward motion. Today's podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is an online software for coaches and trainers, and I've continued to hear great things about the Team Builder platform. If you're looking for either an in-house training portal for your training groups or an online training hub, be sure to check out the Team Builder training software. Yeah. I've been thinking more and more lately just about, um, like you mentioned, like selecting the container, like the environment, the constraints, and selecting constraints that have a really low initial barrier of entry, meaning they can pretty well do it and have some movement options and have an initial ability to explore on their own versus like if you have a group like back squatting heavy right away, there's very little... I could see why the strike coach would be nervous in that situation because 100%. you have less room for error and maybe they feel like they need to coach them up more versus if you selected a container like, hey, we're going to start by squat, doing goblet squats and picking up sandbags. There's a lot of room to explore. There's a a yeah. lot of stuff and it's more fun in some ways. I, yeah. I think I mentioned this oddly enough on the last call when I was on with, uh, with Mike Zweifel when we talked, gosh, it been years ago now. But this was right after probably we released our weight room course through Emergence. But one thing that we did on that course, and we discuss in the course, but I'll mention it here, that was really helpful for me. We're talking across like hundreds and hundreds of different athletes. <clears throat> if you still use cards, you being whoever out there, if you're using cards, not saying this wrong, just saying if you're using cards still, we would have an explore box. So it literally had yeah. eight on it, and it was one through five. So if they were new at squatting a barbell, and they had 135, 95 pounds on, it might have a two on there, meaning we've talked about what exploration means. So I want you to stay relatively consistent with your the distrib- or the uh, spacing of your feet, but you can play with the tempo a little bit. You can go down a little slower, you can go down a little quicker, but I'm not wanting you to split your stance. I'm not wanting you to overload one side mm-hmm. a little bit more. So you're limiting their search in some way. But if I have an athlete, like if I was working with you, 
I want I want to expand your possibilities. And yes, I'm going to take into account your fatigue levels and what you've done previously, but I might have a four or five on, a, on an exercise. So that was a way for myself and one of the colleagues that I worked with at the time for us to have numerous athletes doing it at one time. But they had to have at least a little bit of an onboarding of why it was valuable. Yeah. And we found that to be pretty easy uh, right across the board. It was like, my job is to help you be the most adaptable mover possible. I want you to enjoy what you do, and I want you to win games. I mean, like most, most kids are going to go, cool, coach, I'm on board with that. Awesome. Well, in order to do so, we may approach things a little bit differently, meaning I want you to try different things. And I, I won't go over my whole spiel, but then we had buy-in right away. So then we just had to inform them of what value there was. But that was one thing that we had on our cards. And then now with the athletes, and I only work with about seven, five to seven, I've been working with them so long. Like it's just, I give them a couple options and they just go and play. Yeah. I, I will say with that course, one thing that um, really impressed me, I thought was really cool. And if there's a video I could share, that'd be cool. Is the, the Bear Crawl Explore was one of my favorite things I pulled. Oh, yeah. And I, I still program that pretty regularly oh, like Very yeah cool. oh yeah. Yeah, yeah and i remember one of the first times i you know like sometimes you aren't sure how a particular group might respond to that you know you might 100%. be they might want to see more structure and it was actually a group of middle distance runners okay. that i was working with and i thought you know distance runners sometimes they're more regimented these guys love the bear call explorer they had so oh, much bet. fun and i do think too especially too where groups are so used to regiment 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 it's like, all of a sudden, it's like, wait, I can just do whatever I want for this time. But I was going to say, I was really impressed with your moves, man, on the video. Like, you had some, oh, you had some it. like, like, it was like, this is like serious, like movement culture, calisthenics, like breakdancing stuff. I was like, yeah, that's What's, awesome. Well, I appreciate it. I will say it's fun, number one. And number two, I, that's an area I've spent. That's where I do most of my own personal work now, you know, because people forget that strength can be developed in many different ways. It mm-hmm. doesn't have to be with a barbell or I love barbell work, love kettlebell work, love different types of work but exploratory crawls and flows it's funny you mentioned that so i I actually have had the i don't want to say argument but the concern raised before where coach goes hey you know tyler like we've tried it but i tried it with my group of so-and-so 14 year olds basket you know women's basketball team and they were all nervous about doing it well there has to be a little bit of prep work Mm -hmm. but then i think that's where there's value of saying it could look something like this. And then coach actually may demo or have an athlete that they're you know, trusted with that may demo what it could look like. That way, it kind of opens people up, frees them up a little bit where they're okay to laugh. But then you actually are encouraging them in times like that. Like I want it to be a bear and a crab and a, and a lunge flow. It might look something like this. And then I would give it a demo. And real quick, and I'll close with this. I was just in China for 10 days and I was doing multiple different things. But one of the things I was doing was working with a myriad of different coaches from PE coaches to or PE teachers to uh, personal trainers to athletic performance coaches. And one of the presentations was centered around reconceptualizing the warm. And I don't know if I've ever met anybody that has gone through it that hasn't just loved it. Even if it's mm-hmm. something they're like, I may not do the cartwheels and the different things, but I can see the value in loading someone's shoulder in this way. But then also it gives them a chance to start to connect to the world around them. So I, I digress. I won't go any further, but I think there's a large value in that type of work. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it almost is subconsciously like digging into me more each year because with like even coaching soccer, like coaching five-year-old soccer, I'll sometimes when it's like a water break, like I really like to keep things moving with the practice. See, we got 50 yeah, minutes, right. an hour. And so I, yeah, yeah. I don't, yeah, and sometimes the kids will just start playing, like they'll just start their own game, you know, in between, <laughs> like that's fine. But a lot of times if it's like there's a leg and like some kids are still getting a drink and they're coming back, they'll be like, all right, show me your cartwheel. All right, show me your hand. Who could show me a handstand? Because some of these kids are in gymnastics and they just keep going. Like they want to keep doing it. They want to show each other their handstands and cartwheels. And I'm like, I'm, I'm kind of getting that bear crawl explore going even in the I middle like of it. soccer practice. One last thing, because I just, I love that. We also have to keep this in mind. This was actually just reminded to me just recently of a a good friend of mine. They have been in school all day long. Now, some school systems are different, but they've been told exactly what to do, how to do it. That's wrong. Don't do that. Do this, do this. And then we're going to bring them out to a weight training session or a skill session. And we're going to go, nope, that's wrong. Don't do this. Nope, that's wrong. Kids need a chance to like, not only be kids, but even, even like professional movers need a chance to be that person. They, they, you know, they need a chance to explore a little bit and to play a little bit. And so I see great value in little spurts of it, little bursts of time. And I have numerous coaches that um, I've could 
could mention here that we have worked with at Emergence and just other people that I know where they've tried this with, we're talking professional baseball organizations, professional football organizations, colleges, and the athletes take to it right away because they see the value in it. And they also realize how much fun it is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm even thinking too, like I could go on about this too, because I was just thinking even like when I worked with swimmers, like high level college swimmers and even pros, yeah. like introducing handstands, like, hey, we're doing handstands in the warm up. They would just keep going, walk on their hands, try to do handstand push-ups, try to do handstand little L with the legs. Like, it's just that fun. That something. Yeah. Coaches, that should tell us something. Yes. Oh, yeah. And and just learning by observing that. And where it's, for me, it's almost like, like you said, it's like a prompt, like yeah. <laughs> almost more than, a, exactly than, right. a, yeah. than, than a command there. Um, I was going to say something too, with even just, just to kind of beyond the gym, the general gym topic for a little bit, because I do think it's a yeah. nice like reference point that like people can always, you know, everyone is, is going to experience this at some point versus maybe if it's a sports skill of a different type. But I was just had a podcast with Alex Effort talking about base of support and from a biomechanics perspective, some people have a naturally wider base of support where they're more comfortable squatting with more of a wider stance, where someone else might be more comfortable and can produce more power in a narrower stance or even a staggered narrow stance. And so, right. but if you just go into the gym, it's like, okay, well, the book said I need to have my feet here and this is the exact width and, and all this. Well, for somebody that might be relatively good but for other people that might be very disadvantageous for their natural way they produce power and produce force i know that happened to me and I actually talked about that on the podcast with alex so I, I and interestingly enough i i kind of um there's some things i am very grateful for because i didn't have a strength coach for the longest time i made a lot of mistakes like you talked about you making lots of before, mistakes yeah. But I I found a squat stance that just felt good. I just remember I squatted really narrow and uh, like a lot of more pressure on my feet for the balls of my feet for whatever reason. And that was always a very athletic feeling type of squat. And Alex has said too, he said this on the first podcast we did that. A lot of times athletes will find the thing that feels good. They usually will find it. A lot of times they'll find it. And I guess that's something to consider is you know having like a something that gives them some options and what are they choosing and then yeah, maybe if they're yeah helping them yeah you're help well you're helping them explore in that way that way they can find it you know what's interesting when you were saying that mm -hmm. I, first of all i agree with all that i mean i won't go into the re exact reasons why femur socket lengths and differences yeah. and you know uh ethnic backgrounds and like there's re a lot of research there but what's interesting is one of the ways that i started to see this differently and realize like okay there's value there it was years ago and we were doing this is I'd already started using like kind of more of this exploratory approach, a constraints led approach, seeing the value in the individual or individual environment relationship and the importance of them harnessing that. We were doing different jumps. So it was just vertical jumps. So when we were moving from line A to line B, 15, 20 yards or so, and they were to get five or six different vertical jumps, different widths, different positions. Well, I would start to see a a repeat, if you will, even though it was, of course, a little different, of certain athletes. Some of them were narrower, but I would see them get really good height on these exploratory jumps. And then they would try one a little bit wider, and it, they, they certainly weren't projecting nearly as high. So I started to then watch them when they would squat, and mm -hmm. I would say, hey, why don't, you, why don't you try it a little bit narrower on this one? Now, why might I have said that? Well, because I just saw them jump narrow and produce a lot of force into the ground, and I thought to myself, maybe that's a different way. And that's how I stumbled on. Mm -hmm. I started to see, you know, if we're, if we're talking numbers, not that this is what this calls about, but if we're talking like numbers and those moving pretty rapidly, all of a sudden, now I was telling them before, no, you have to do it like this. And now all of a sudden, I'm trying to harness it more towards what's comfortable for them and their numbers went up right away. And so just using a simple jump, just watching someone jump and seeing where they're actually organizing those degrees of freedom. And if it doesn't look like it's going to be detrimental and potentially lead to injury then maybe let them run with it yeah i love i love that um that comparison because it's like yeah it's just that it, yeah. it really highlights the art of observation too on on the part of the coach like we think i think we think about coaching and we think i don't know for some reason maybe you think like 70 percent is just talking or something you know giving commands right but it's like i was you, bad at that early on i'll be honest <laughs> <laughs> yeah if you think of it instead of like it's like prompting you know maybe part of that is commands but part of it's prompting part of it's observation listening like you know all sorts of these things like that converse that total conversation piece it, it's really a conversation just as you and i are talking as a conversation That's is right. i think we don't think about it like that um i you said something really interesting tyler and i think it may have been on another podcast or in some presentations okay. you've given and uh, uh like self-organization like 
how do we know that an athlete is self-organizing correctly? Because I think, you know, instantly things get polarized and it's like, okay, well, what is this just a big free for all? And the coach is standing right, there, like, right. you know, maybe flipping a coin or, or just watch, you know, while kids go through constraints versus at what point uh, do we come in and offer prompts, feedback, instruction? And of course, this is an art, but I'd love your just take on that, that perspective. Yeah, that's a, that's a deep question and a great mm-hmm. question. I think first thing I'll state is not all self-organization is necessarily going to be functional. And I think sometimes it's talked about, well, they're self-organizing. It's the, it's a good thing. Well, it can also be detrimental. You know, In some ways, it could potentially lead to injury. It could lead to them continually getting tackled, getting the ball taken away. You know, and self-organization is more than just the individual as well. It could be collectively across a group. Um, so I, that's the first thing I'll say. Secondly, and I won't get deep with this, I promise, because this is another conversation. Mm-hmm. But if we view athletes as complex adaptive systems, which is an ecological dynamics view, if we view athletes as complex adaptive systems, these are open systems. Okay? Athletes are open systems. They're continually exchanging energy with the world around them, which also includes their teammates and defenders. So the, the co-positioning of defenders, like if I have a teammate that, that now has come in possession of the ball, and I'm standing right next to him, and then there's defenders in that space, I'm naturally kind of spacing out in order to create an outlet pass potentially to be advantageous for our team scoring a point. So that would be an example of like self-organization of a team or the development of uh, functional behavior of a team. To answer your question specifically, when do I step in? A lot of the literature is going to talk about in the ballpark of, let's just call it 75, like 75% of the time, if they are scoring a point, if they are uh, being able to elude a tackle, if they're doing something in that realm, then I want to let it. I want to let them run with it. I don't want to really say as much. I want those, let's call it mistakes in those twenty five percent of the time. I want that, if you want to term it, non functional mm-hmm. behavior to occur because it's still valuable for them as they become sensitive to moving bodies and uh, you know, balls that are traveling towards them and the like. They can become embedded in their environment. But if it's more than that, and it's continually more than that. Mm-hmm. That's where a coach needs to step in. And the, this is a this is the art that you referred to, but that's where there's true value in the constraints-led approach. Now, the constraints-led approach is a purposeful manipulation of constraints. It's not a willy-nilly just change things. That that's more of just a repetition without repetition and appreciating that mm-hmm. idea, or even more of what's referred to as differential learning, which is I could go into that, but it, that's the changing things every time on every rep. But for a constraints-led approach. If I have a player that is really struggling in a 2v3 situation that I've set up, you pick the sport, but in a team sport, and they're not able to evade the defenders, well, I need to do something something simple, such as I need to remove one of the defenders, and mm-hmm. it needs to be a 2v2. Or I may need to open this space up a little bit to create larger gaps. So I'm not changing the relationship from a numerical standpoint. And they're still trying to achieve, you know, making it past the line to gain, if you will. But now I've just opened the space up and I may let that unfold a little bit. And if it's still similar, but now I'm starting to see a bit more of a functional fit, I might then walk over and say, show me how you can exploit the speed of that defender. Okay? Or I might not use exploit. I might say, show me how you could use the, their speed of pursuit. Show me how you can use that against them. Hmm. Look at your options to your left and your right. Okay, because it seems like you're always continuing to bounce it outside. So I'm not saying that's wrong, but what I was trying to do there, that's a prompt, okay, going back to what we said earlier, I'm trying to educate their attention to space around them because there's more than a one-way go there. There's a multiple-way go. And so by opening the space and then adding that question to it, that then is helping guide their search. So why I'm mentioning that in relation to self-organization is now I might start to see more of a functional fit and then start to self-organize in a functional way, but it was because they weren't even picking up the information that was specifying those opportunities. So I needed to use a constraint, which acts as information that specifies those different ways in which they can achieve their goal. So in summary, and I know that's a lot, but in summary, it's not always a good thing. That's number one. Number two, there is the value and the need for a coach. It's not just a do whatever you want to do when you want to do it. That's that's mm-hmm. incorrect. And it has been suggested that it that's the opposite. And that's not what we've said from an ecological perspective. And then number three, I mentioned scaling of complexity. 
So I we use we coined this in our 2022 paper slice of the game or slice of the sport. That might be a small slice. That may be a really large slice. But it needs to be individual specific, and it needs to be what meets that learner where they are. And that might be a numerical relation change. That might be a rule change. Mm. That might be a surface change. That might be a time of the day change. I won't go keep going, but those are just different constraints that could be manipulated. Yeah. I like what you said, Tyler, about um, it's almost like in my mind, it's like the the coach who doesn't have a plan and just would change things. That's like the, it's like, are you going to be the differential learning coach or the CLA coach, the constraints? I mean, again, I guess the, I think yeah. if you can use differential learning, they're like, both well, valuable. Yeah, they can be yeah, both be they're valuable. Both, yeah. They're both valuable. I, I'll, I'll take something from a good friend of mine, Dr. Rob Gray. He mentioned this years ago in a podcast. It was a really nice capture of like the difference between the two. He talked about there being a buffet and you're with your learner and you tell your learner, you can eat out of any of the different areas of the buffet you want, but it has to be different every time. And then with the CLA, it's say you can eat out of the entire left side over here. I want you to stay away from the middle and the right. You can eat out of different areas of that buffet, but it needs to be the left. Now, that's a really basic description of the differences between the two. But I'm not just changing the size of the space just because I'm like, let's change the size of the space. That's not wrong. It can still be helpful. And I'm going to say this part slowly, especially for coaches who are new to the ideas. Mm-hmm. I actually encourage that if they have the opportunity to change a lot of different constraints, set up a lot of different problems. But you need to be observe. You know, you need to make sure you're observing mm-hmm. and you're maybe documenting some things about what you're finding from their behavior. And yeah. then as we get better at manipulating constraints, that's why we might open that space up a little bit. Uh, you talked about prompts and versus versus that command. Those are instructional constraints. That is a constraint. If you speak to your athletes, okay, you are changing the way that they interact with the world in some way, shape, or form, positive or negative, even though it may be obviously with a positive spin. But if you say, don't do this, do this, or why did you do that? And it's this tone, it's going to shape what they look to do on the next repetition or next uh you know, activity that they interact with. So just something to keep in mind, but a purposeful manipulation is different from a random manipulation. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Plyomat. The Plyomat is a jump testing device that allows you to instantly receive ground contact times, jump heights, reactive strength measurements, and more in your training populations. It's easy to use, accurate, and affordable. And an awesome feature that I love about the plyo mat is it easily allows the connection of not just one mat, but you can string multiple mats together for use in things like multi-hurdle hops and bounding situations. I absolutely love the plyo mat, recommend it. And to check it out, you can head to plyomat.net. That's P-L-Y-O-M-A-T.net. Yeah. I, I as you were talking, Tyler, and tell me what you think about this, but I I sketch I've drawn a lot since we in my notepad since we started talking i have like a bunch of them bunch of notes and i drew this like little pyramid um it, it just this kind of formed in my head as you were talking and it's almost like if there's this pyramid it starts on a level with um creating the constraint and i think where it often happens is it goes constraints commands and then maybe prompts like if the cherry on top in typical coaching right like you you come up with a thing you say yeah, hey you surprising. weren't there you know <laughs> you weren't there on time do this pass to this person etc cetera, etc cetera. Versus, like, as you're speaking, it almost it's like, well, it's constraint first. Or if you're choosing to use differential learning in, in a select way. Um, but it's like constraints, then prompts. And then if that doesn't work, like, that's almost where the self-organization fail at that point. Where, like, you create the constraint. Maybe you gave the athlete some prompts. And then it still didn't work. Okay, it's like, well, now what? You know, because I think we've all been there. That's an interesting, yeah. interesting way to describe it. I think at first I would say is there they really are all constraints, but it, if yeah. it helps you conceptualize it in that mm-hmm. way, that yeah. actually is helpful. So, like, way you describe it, that might be a decent way for if you're working with said individual. And to your point, you're not seeing it change after you've gone through this level of the pyramid. Then that might be an indication that something else needs to be done from a from a constraint manipulation standpoint. And that might mean like, okay, yeah. we've tried a lot of space changes. We've tried a lot of numerical relation changes. Their behavior is not changing. Well, why might that be? Is it because I haven't let it play out long enough? Going back to the comment I made in the onset of this podcast, talking about like rates of learning. Well, it's been a week. Like We can't expect this right away. And I won't 
go into this too deeply, I promise, but it is hmm. worth mentioning. I found great value at numerous different places that I was working to have, and this is for, let's call it developmental athletes, to have a parent coach kind of get together and outline kind of why we may be approaching things the way mm. we are. Now, I think people do that already, but the reason why it's valuable, you made the mention like they want to see change right away. Well, they might get really good in a month or two months from now, but are you going to pull them out if you don't see change within two weeks? You know, there's a, there's a, there's a process here. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to mention that. And then the other thing I would say would be the way you framed it in like maybe changing things because you have a, a purpose and you kind of have an outline for it for coaches that are maybe new to this idea or new to these approaches that if it creates some structure, like I said, I think that would be valuable. But I think the main takeaway, and you didn't indicate this, but I think it's worth mentioning. And I, I will allude to this by saying this could be any constraint. If you are manipulating constraints, this isn't a plug and play with every athlete that you work with. Now, there still could be some value there, but as you work with athletes longer, there needs to be a reason as to why it's mm-hmm. done. Otherwise, you may not see behavior change, and it's not because they're not doing anything or they're not doing everything wrong. It could be because you're not doing it to meet them where they are. So I'm hoping that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would just say for me, like uh, two levels of where I work. One is coaching five-year-olds in soccer where I'll change constraints and it literally is all just fun. Like it's all exploring. It's all, nothing is really that consequential. If I, like one time I did sharks and minnows and like half the kids didn't know where they were going to go, but you could see the kids who had played flag football knew exactly how to play sharks. And it was like, to me, it's just kind of funny. But then uh, if I'm working with someone who's like a sprinter and has been sprinting for a while, if I select uh, the wrong constraint, well, I selected the wrong one, but I need to eventually funnel and refine the selection of constraints for this individual. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. That's, and, that's actually a good example because like, you're right. Yeah, I mean, like it, we, we were talking about that the whole first part of the podcast, mm-hmm. like with younger individuals, whether it's ships crossing the ocean or whether it's <laughs> sharks and minnows or whatever it may be, like that's exposing into a lot of different problems. And that's really what they need at that point. And I, I said this already, but it's worth repeating. I think for coaches who were wanting to give this a go, and and I won't talk too much about my doctoral research, but like coaches that are wanting to give this a go, that's a good place to start. Like just start to change things and see what you find. You know, have conversations with the athletes. You know, what are you, what are you finding? It was actually a, a major theme from the Sport Movement Skill Conference that we just hosted. I have never heard in my next many years in this industry, and, and definitely within the nearly decade harnessing an ecological approach, how many coaches that are like finding the value in a co-adaptive relationship. So representative design, but co-design. So basically inviting the athletes to their party. Mm. Yeah. Uh, let's just finish with that. Cause I know we don't have a whole lot of time left. I know you got to get going. So in the couple minutes we have left, if you would like to share, uh, and I'll leave this, I will give you some degrees of freedom that. here, <laughs> your doctoral, uh, your doctoral yeah. work, uh, what you were learning more on the line of uh, skill coaches and skill specialists integrating anything there just as parting ways before we um, press the off button yeah, for I, the recording. I, I appreciate it. Uh, so like I mentioned in the onset, the the journey has been great. PhD, uh, PhD journey has been fantastic thus far. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. I've learned a lot. It's way more work than I even expected. But then again, I have a, a couple of great supervisors, one in particular that's uh, nudging me to continue to write. And even though that you're producing peer-reviewed research, it doesn't necessarily directly go to you achieving your doctorate. It just helps you in supporting you in defending whenever you do. So that has been enjoyable and to learn how to communicate the ideas more effectively because, you know, I want to make it accessible for coaches. But my journey has been awesome. I initially wanted to investigate affordance, perception, and utilization. So opportunity for action, uh, perception, and utilization in American football players. And I want to elaborate exactly how the, the research was going to under, uh, you know, undergo it. But it was, it was interesting because my, uh, supervisor Keith Davis at the time, he was like, Tyler, that's like a 50 hour a week <laughs> project. And you just told me that you want to, you want to do this part time. So I ended up moving to something else and I'm investigating the perceived impact of sports coaches and practitioners after they've interacted with online education from mm. an ecological standpoint. Oh, cool. So they've gone through education, you know, interacting with ecological literature, nonlinear pedagogy. And I want to know more about what's the perceived value found. And I also want to know about 
what has it, what impact has it made with the learners that you work with? Are you seeing a change in skill? Are you seeing what are you, what are you observing from that? And I won't unpack it too much here, but I will say I have been flabbergasted actually with how many times when I'm going through and analyzing the data, how many coaches themselves are saying this, or they're making the observation about the athletes they partner with. They're like, my players enjoy it more. They just have more fun. And I have more fun as a coach. And you know, you hear, I'm hearing this over and over and over. I mean, I had to create a whole separate code for it um, when I'm using mathematic analysis because of how many different people are talking about it. And then last but not least, you know, what I am finding is that this isn't something for me, what I hope to achieve with my doctorate. I want to be able to move the field forward, but not because you have to adopt a single way. It's just creating awareness of multiple different ways that you can approach skill acquisition and skill development. And it's giving coaches an option then to explore why it might be valuable for them. And you know, I could keep going on with what I found, but I'm getting ready to start my write-up here actually in about a week and a half and hopefully defend here shortly. But it's been a really enjoyable journey. I'm about nine to 10 months away. I can see the finish line. So I'm really excited for that. And then, uh, yeah, I mentioned the Sport Movement Skill Conference. Things have been great for emergence. We are finding that the community is, I'd say, is more open than I have ever seen the community before to just starting to wrestle with some new ideas. And I think it's largely because of not just us, but the community in general wanting to truly see what else is out there because maybe for what they've done for so long, they're not seeing the change that they expected. And so they're like, okay, well, I've heard of ecological dynamics. I did I had nothing to do with it early on, but now I at least want to see what it has to offer. And so more coaches are asking questions. And then the common themes were co-adaptive relationships, uh, the importance of scaling complexity. I mentioned that early on, and that comes with learning more about the athletes that you partner with, like you mentioned. And why you may change, you know, and manipulate constraints. And then third would be, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention this, is that you and I have talked before about the language maybe being hard to break through, you know, mm-hmm. hard to, to conceptualize what it may be. Well, early on, I was like, I had I wanted nothing to do with it. I was kind of being an a-hole and I was like, nope, you just need to learn it. it is what it is, mm-hmm. figure it out. Well, I still feel that way to a certain extent because everything has its unique language. But I'm like, what can I do? And what can Sean do it and the team at Emergence, what can we do to actually maybe absorb what is useful from some of these comments to borrow from our, our man, Bruce Lee. And one of it was, okay, we need to start to use different words to capture the same idea that are much more accessible and will maybe move coaches further along for getting it a go themselves. And one of those words is just making training more alive. Mm-hmm. So does your training environment, is it alive? And if so, on a scale from one to 10, how alive is it? And alive means replete with opportunities for interaction. It's dynamic. And there's a chance for individuals to make decisions and make rapid decisions. And so we actually, in our latest paper that was published in late May, we have an alive movement problem solving checklist. It's open access. People can access it and look at it. But it's something that coaches, even if they can't answer all the questions, even if it's just answering a couple of them, the more yeses you have, the more alive your activities likely are for your athletes. And that goes back to a lot of we, what we discussed today, from exploratory behavior to donor activities to representative design and the need for people to become sensitive to information they are going to pick up in the sport that they play. So that way they can move more skillfully. Yeah. I love that. Um, like diluting or distilling that down to yeah. dis- dilute, not a good word, distill, better word, distilling that down. <laughs> is this alive? Like that being a marker before you alive? even need to know yes any no. terminology. Do you know this? And it reminds me of what Rafe Kelly had said a, a long time ago, back in the one seventies on this podcast about, is there a smile on their face before they start the training session? And just like yeah. everything that goes with that. But like, are you, there's on one end, it is like, yes, like there is team dynamics, discipline, loyalty, like yes. all those important elements, but are you having fun on the other end? Is this fun? Do you, are you excited learning these skills like that, that other gauge, maybe that's like, you know, another like, you know, art and science. And piece Rafe maybe. is, he's always done a good job with that. I mean, we had him two years ago, maybe two years ago at the sport movement skill conference and he delivered a great presentation. It was centered around a lot of those ideas because alive could be many things. Mm-hmm. And that's the cool thing about it. It's like yeah. alive can mean that it's going to create excitement and joy and fun. And that's going to bring 
people back regardless of level, or alive can mean that it looks, feels, and behaves a bit more like their sport. But basically, there's just numerous opportunities for engagement. And so that's really, I think, a really great starting point for coaches whenever they're looking at what they've designed is, is this activity alive and affording opportunities for them to move in unique ways? And yes, it could go much further from that or much further than that. But I think what we need to understand is that if we have sterile, passive, or let's be honest, dead activities where we're telling them that's wrong, do it this Mm -hmm, way, do it this way, you're going to drive people away. They're going to fall out of love with movement. And more than likely, you're going to see pretty, I don't want to use the word poor, but less adaptable movers than you would if you would give them a chance to, to work through some problems. Yeah. That's a great, uh, that's an awesome like closing statement. I know you have to get out of here, Tyler, but thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Enjoyed oh, talking man, to you. Thanks for having enjoyed, me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, enjoyed getting this huge notepad of various drawings <laughs> going while you were talking as well. So thanks again. All right, cheers, man. Thanks for having me. That finishes another show. Thanks for tuning in. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next week.